Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Good morning, church. It's a real pleasure to be with you and share God's Word with you this morning. It's always a delight to worship with you and to enjoy your company. Uh, the last number of times I've seen uh, Pastor Mark, Pastor Mark always tells me, Richie, we really love you at Redeemer. And uh, that's always encouraging words to hear. But in the words of 1 John 3, uh, we're called to love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And our family has definitely felt loved by you over these last eight years in our gospel partnership, not just in word and tongue, uh, but in deed and in truth. And so our hearts are very thankful for you and thankful for your partnership. And so it is a great delight to be with you this morning. Uh, we've been here for a couple years now on our extended home ministry assignment, and uh, hopefully in about May or June, uh, if we get our adopted daughter's U.S. passport and visas, we'll be making our way back to India, uh, Lord willing. So that's an exciting update, and hopefully we'll get to move forward with that. Uh, I'm excited to share God's Word with you from Psalm 138 this morning. I'd invite you to turn there uh, to Psalm 138. October of last year, I was just my normal Saturday morning Bible reading. I read through the Psalms, and this Psalm struck my heart, and I began to memorize it. And just a, a verse or two a week, thinking about it as I lay down to sleep, working on it, it just really got in my heart. And uh, as I was memorizing, I think, I need to preach on this Psalm. And uh, so I wrote a sermon that I preached at my home church of Trinity at the end of this last year. And when uh, your pastor, Jordan, asked me to preach, I said, can I preach Psalm 138? And he said, well, that'll fit great. We're going through the Psalms of Ascent. And this is not a Psalm of Ascent, but you've been in the Psalter uh, close to this region. And so I'm really delighted to share this text with you. You may not know, but it's been two years since COVID hit. This is kind of the weekend. It was March 14th, 15th of 2020. And so this is a psalm that will help us, I think, look back at a two years of craziness and yet guided by Scripture to, to know how to be thankful to our Lord over these last two years for His work in our lives and in our world, and then impel us forward to how continue to cultivate gratitude and see His glory demonstrated around the globe. So I think this is a wonderful psalm uh, during this March as you think about your outreach month in Sunday school. Let me pray before we read this text of Scripture, and then we'll get into it. Our Father in heaven, it is such a privilege and joy to open to your word and just to sit at your feet and to hear you speak to us. Lord, these words were written long ago, penned by a human being, but we know that they were also inspired by your Holy Spirit. This is the very word of the living God, and we're so grateful to be able to read it and to hear from you. Lord, we've just sung that your name is majestic in all the earth, and certainly it is majestic in the creation around us. This is your world, though fallen, still glorious, and yet nowhere is your name more majestic than in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is in, on display in this psalm and every text of Scripture. And so our plea with you, even before we read this psalm, as we think about it, is that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we would see the majesty of our wonderful Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that sight, that vision would lead us to a whole-souled gratitude that would not just culminate in worship of you this day, but would redound to the gospel going forward around our globe. Father, do a work in us by your Spirit through this text for your glory among the nations. We would ask for nothing less, and we pray with expectation in Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 138, Psalm of David. The Word of God says this, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love 
and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. I want to draw your attention to the back of your bulletin. You'll have an outline of this sermon. If you'd like to use that to follow along or take notes, it might be helpful. It was Thanksgiving Day. 1993, a woman named Tracy Otler didn't have a lot to celebrate, at least in her mind, about Thanksgiving. She was struggling, struggling to get by. She was in nursing school. She lived in a shabby apartment in a dingy neighborhood. She had a three-year-old child and was pregnant with, uh, eight months pregnant with her second. The father was not around. There was no family to celebrate with. It was just Thanksgiving. She hadn't planned much. She'd probably eat out of a can, something opened up. And then she heard a knock on her door. Not expecting anyone, she went to the door in wonder, wondering, what, who's at my door? And it was a delivery man of a local food service. And he had a meal, and he said, are you Tracy Otler? She said, yes, I am. He said, I have a meal for you. He goes, I didn't order a meal. He goes, I know, but someone did for you. Happy Thanksgiving. I said, well, who did it? And said, so, well, they would like to remain anonymous. They just want you to know that you're not forgotten, and they want you to celebrate with you and your, your child. And she was stunned. Had this wonderful feast she enjoyed with her three-year-old son. And multiple times throughout that day, she just wept with gratitude, thinking, who could be so kind to show me this, to do something like this? And as she thought about that gratitude, it began to change her perspective. Even that day, it almost set a new course direction in her life where she thought, you know, I would like to do that for others. I would like to go around and and show people undeserved kindness, and I just want them to taste a little bit of what I have tasted today. And so she began in that direction. She met a man. They got married. She began her nursing career. She'd been working her way through nursing school. They wanted to be generous as a family, so they began to foster children. They adopted a child. They made it their goal to intentionally look for ways people God put in their life, in their neighborhood, their workplace, just to bless others, to show unexpected acts of kindness, wanting people to experience that same gratitude she first tasted on that Thanksgiving day in November of 1993. When they told her story in a book on gratitude in 2014, her and her husband had made a New Year's commitment, a New Year's resolution, that in the coming year they would look for 100 opportunities to show unexpected kindness to people, just to help people experience that type of gratitude Experiencing undeserved kindness and gratitude can be transformative, truly, even on a human level, even human to human. But how much more so when we have experienced the unexpected and the undeserved kindness of our holy God? 
We who profess to be followers of the Redeemer, the name of your church, the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we deserve nothing but God's just, hot wrath for all eternity because of our rebellion, our foul rebellion against Him. And yet we are here today as blood-bought people in Christ to celebrate that God, rich in His mercy, showed us unexpected kindness by sending His only Son to live, to die, and to rise again on our behalf, that in Him we might be reconciled to God, and more than just no longer being enemies of God, become His beloved children. God has been incredibly good to us, and this goodness is not just a saving us from His white-hot wrath. That would be good enough. We understand in Scripture that when we believe in Jesus, we are united to Christ. We are joined to Him in the most intimate way possible in a way that our human marriages are meant to, but only in a shadow form, point to of the indwelling intimacy we share with our Redeemer. Our God is active and present in our life. We are sons and daughters of the living God. He works in our life every day. At this moment, your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, is at the right hand of your Father in heaven, and He is interceding for you right now. Every day, those of us united to Christ have a reason to be overflowing with gratitude, to cultivate a gratitude that should overflow in our worship. We should be stunned and amazed, not judging our Father's kindness by the changing circumstances of our life, not looking back over this COVID craziness of two years and judging His love and care for us simply by the chaos and the grief that many of us have experienced but thinking theologically about what God has done for us in Christ. And when we cultivate that sort of gratitude, when we think theologically, when we let Scripture guide our relationship with God, it should overflow in a wholesome gratitude, which in one sense is an end in itself, because our greatest end is to worship and enjoy and delight in the triune God. And yet Scripture says that when we Grow a gratitude. It doesn't just stay where we are. It it spills over. It overflows to our neighbors and to the nations. It goes forward in power. One of our sister PCA churches used to have a slogan that said, what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And friends, that's the logic in Psalm 138. The logic of this psalm is that when you cultivate a whole-souled gratitude for your Redeemer, it overflows and it goes to the nations. It spills out. It goes over. What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And so I want to spend just a few moments today unpacking Psalm 138 to help you grow a gratitude that goes global to grow a gratitude that goes global. And the logic of our text comes to us in three steps. In verses 1 to 3, these these verses will challenge us to develop wholehearted gratitude, whole-souled worship, whole-souled thankfulness. And then our second and third points are going to be an overflow, a result of that. We'll see in verses 4 to 6 that when we develop a wholehearted gratitude, we will want to declare our gratitude globally. We want to make it to the nations. And as we go about that great task as senders, as goers, thirdly in verses 7 through 8, we'll see that a wholehearted gratitude will help us to depend on the God to whom you are grateful. 
that indeed our third step will enable our second step of declaring our gratitude globally. So let's get into verse 1 as we think about developing a wholehearted gratitude. Notice the proclamation of King David here. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with a half heart. I give you thanks, O Lord, with a little bit of my heart. I'll give you thanks with 90%. No, he does not say that. He says, I'll give you thanks with my whole heart. With everything I have, I will declare your praise. This is no mere duty. It is a duty, we heard from the law of God, to give thanks in all circumstances. But David has joined duty to delight. And with everything he has, he wants to give thanks to his Redeemer. It's not perfunctory. My wife and I like to stream a show called Blue Bloods, which is pretty popular. Some of you may have seen it. It's a show uh, focusing on a New York uh, police family. Tom Selleck is the main actor. He's the chief of police, and uh, many of the children are police officers or work in the DA's office, and they're Catholic, and their Catholic uh, faith comes through a little bit. And in every episode of Blue Bloods, if you watch it, they always have a family dinner. I've watched 12 seasons. There's never been an episode they don't have family dinner. And many times at family dinner, they show them doing their prayer of thanksgiving. And sometimes even the family members who really aren't devout Catholics, they go to Mass, but they're not, they don't believe, they'll go through and they'll do the prayer of thanksgiving. And it goes like this. It's the same every time. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. And they move on, usually arguing with each other, <laughs> fighting over things where they flesh things out. But you get this sense, it's just a duty, it's a religiosity, it's, a, it's perfunctory. There's no one who's really pouring out their emotion. They just go through it. Even many of the unbelieving Catholics, if you will, in this show, just say it. But friends, that's not the gratitude that is on display in this psalm. That is not the gratitude that the Spirit wants to engender in our hearts today as we consider the goodness of our God. No, this is a wholehearted gratitude He says in the end of verse 1 that before the gods, I will sing your praise. Not just private, it's public. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. Gods translates the Hebrew word Elohim, a word that is sometimes used to describe our God. When you see G-O-D, just God in the Old Testament, it's usually translating this word Elohim. It can mean gods, like here, the gods of the nations. Less often, though, it can also mean angels or human rulers. I would propose that it probably means human rulers here because in verse 4 and 5, David is envisioning the kings of the earth coming and joining in this white-hot worship of God. So probably before the kings of the earth, he's bowing to sing God's praise. Regardless, whether it's the gods or angels or human rulers, it's not private. There's a place. We should pour out our soul daily, I hope, in deep worship to our God. But this is not that. This is opening your mouth to those that God has put into your life. This is telling the goodness of God, recounting the goodness of God, both in the temporal kindnesses, but also what He has done for you in Jesus Christ to anyone who will listen, to those who will hear. What is the source of this whole-souled public worship? We see in verse 2, He says, "'I bow down towards your holy temple.'" He's probably actually at the temple when he's doing this. And he says, I'll give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for your chesed, your covenant love. 
David has seen God deliver him over and over again. He's seen a God who's been faithful to his promises over and over again. And as he considers it and thinks on it, it makes his heart overflow in worship of this God. What's interesting is how verse 2 roots the faithful covenant love of our God. Notice what it says in verse 2. After he says, I give thanks for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, he points to something deeper, a foundation for God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him. We see it in the explanatory word for. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. The idea is that the steadfast love and faithfulness that he has shown to David and to his people is rooted in something deeper, and it's God's commitment to his name, to exalt his name, to glorify him. And we see this truth that is repeated over and over in Scripture, that there is no contradistinction in the glory of God and the good of God's people that come together in one It's not a threat to us that God exalts his name and word above all things. It's the security that he will be faithful to us But He because he has condescended to make covenant with us. He has pledged himself to us, so much so that were he to break his covenant promise, it would defame his name, and he will not do that. And so we know this God, and we delight in this God who's pursuing his own glory is for our greatest good. We find joy in that. I lived in Australia for about three and a half years, and Australia is a wonderful country in many ways. There's many good things about it. Australians very intentionally try to make sure everybody has a living wage. It's been like that since the 1850s. It used to be called a working man's paradise. And they did something well-intentioned, but ultimately destructive to the service industry, to those who work in restaurants. They said, we don't want you to have to work for tips. We want to force employers to pay you a living wage so you don't have to work for tips. And it sounds good, but it's not good if you're the one being served, because service is very half-hearted. Your server might pay attention to you. If they bring you the wrong thing, they'll seem miffed if you say, hey, can you bring me the right thing? Sometimes you really have to wave them down to get something, because there's no self-interest. There's no additional motivation of getting a tip in order to show you good service. And oftentimes, I was in a cafe or restaurant, and I think, man, I miss American service. I'd be glad to pay a tip for an attentive, kind server. I want Chick-fil-A service. I know they don't work for tips, but you know what I mean. We bring that in. I don't care about the self-interest of my server. I'm glad for their self-interest in working for a tip because it's for my good. And I've loved being back in American restaurants and having attentive, kind servers. And you see an illustration of someone seeking their self-interest and being for your own benefit. Now, the analogy breaks down. I'm aware of that with God to some degree. Because God is triune. God is always magnifying another member of the Trinity when he's seeking his glory. He's the creator. We are the created ones. But we see over and over again that God seeking his glory is our foundation and hope because he's made covenant with his people. He delights in us, and the psalmist celebrated this. And notice verse 3, the, the tangible expression he saw of God's commitment to him. He says in verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. God was not a distant God for David. God didn't say to him, yeah, I might or might not respond to you. A little busy next week. Nah, you don't need anything from me. 
No, because he made covenant, he's covenanted to be Emmanuel. He's covenanted to be the God who is near to his people, not to remain at an aloof distance, but to be an attentive God, a God who fights for his people, a God who is there when his people struggle, so that when we call out on him, we can have confidence that on the day I call, you answer me. Now, Hebrew poetry often works like this. It tells you one line, and then the second line, it gives you more explanation, more detail, and there's a connection. It's called parallelism. And in verse 3, when he says, on the day I called, you answered me, the next part of this verse explains what that prayer answer looked like, and it looked like this. He says, my strength of soul, you increased. That's the the main answer to prayer that that David is celebrating here. Now, certainly, we know from David's life that there were many times that God acted and helped him in the moment and delivered him, and many of those are celebrated in the Psalms. And that's probably part of the celebration here. But he especially wants to focus on the times when even God did not deliver him from the difficult circumstance. And just look at David's life. It's filled with difficult circumstance, prolonged difficult circumstance after difficult circumstance, and yet he says, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. It was God strengthening him for the task at hand, God strengthening him through the suffering and difficulty, God never abandoning him in the most difficult things. God being there to strengthen his soul, even in the bleakest of times when no one else was around him. I think of Jesus in Gethsemane. I think of the greater son of David, about to go to hell on the cross for his people, about to experience the white-hot wrath of Almighty God, and rightfully not wanting to do it. Luke tells us he was so intense that he sweat drops of blood. He was pleading with his father, Father, if there's any way possible, would you let this hour pass? Because he knew better than anyone what he was about to face for you, his elect people. He was going to face and satisfy the infinite wrath of God against all of the sins of all of God's elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he pleaded with God, and he said, not my will, but your will be done. And the question is, can Jesus say, Psalm 138.3 was true in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I believe, yes, he can. I believe Jesus would say, on the day I called, Father, you answered me. Why? Because my strength of soul, you increased. The Father did not deliver him from the most difficult circumstance anyone would ever face of going to the cross, but he did strengthen him. Luke 22 says the angels came and ministered to him. His strength of soul, he increased that he might go to the cross. And if his father had not strengthened his strength of soul to make him go to the cross, we would all be damned. Instead, we are brought into this wonderful covenant relationship through Jesus and our union with him so that what is true of David and what was true of Jesus is now true of us. That on the day we call, our God answers us. His strength of soul is increased or our strength of soul is increased. Now, friends, in light of that truth, I want you to reflect on these last two years of COVID craziness since March of 2020. Some of you, it's touched very deeply. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been sick. Lots of other things, not just having to do with COVID, have gone on in your life over the the last two years. The question is, can you give whole-souled gratitude this morning to your God's work in your life? And I believe you can. I believe there's not been a day over these last three years, not a moment 
where Psalm 138.3 was not true of you, that God was continually strengthening your soul as you worshiped him, as you cried out to him. Every moment over these last two years, the triune God has been with you in your battles daily against sin. Every time you've repented, he's been willing to extend his assurance of forgiveness. Everything that's gone on in your life, good or bad, including your own stupid failures, your own sins, Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that God is making that into good, which is your conformity to Jesus. And there's nothing more loving and good that your Father in heaven can do for you than to make you more like Jesus. He has strengthened your soul to persevere with him. Maybe even today, many of you are wrestling with sorrow, discouragement, disappointment, even depression. And God strengthening your soul doesn't mean you always walk around with a happy smile on your face and it's happy-go-lucky. Sometimes God strengthening your soul is just allowing you to actually get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. Some of you, about all you have right now is that you are clinging to Jesus and it feels like just barely, but that's because Psalm 138.3 is true in your life. God is strengthening your soul for your perseverance in Jesus because, friends, if you have Jesus, you have everything everything in your union with him, every spiritual blessing according to Ephesians 1. Over these last two years, I've seen close friends of mine who I thought were very strong followers of Christ, even partners in our ministry for decades. I've had a few of them totally walk away from the faith, totally say they do not believe in Jesus. I've seen key leaders in our broader evangelical reform faith, who I used their resources to disciple men in India and Australia. And some of my favorite resources were written by a man who a couple years ago said he no longer believes the gospel. And he's walked away from the faith. Friends, if you are here today and you are following Jesus, and if you say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, and you know him to be so, the only reason you have not walked away from your faith is because Psalm 138.3 has been true in your life, and God has been strengthening your soul that you might cling to your dear Redeemer every moment of these last two years and every moment going forward. The reason you can continue to develop and cultivate whole soul gratitude is because of promises like Psalm 138.3, rooted in the very character of God who seeks his own glory and his covenant commitment to his people who is present with you. And so as you move forward and as you reflect back, don't merely look at the temporal kindnesses of our God. You should. Students, the, the song, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one, see what God has done. That's true. We should do that. We should be very thankful for God's temporal kindnesses. But regardless of the temporal kindnesses that come and go, because of what God has promised to be for us in Jesus, we need to think theologically about our circumstances and develop and cultivate a whole soul gratitude for this God who says, on the day you call, I will answer you. Your strength of soul, I will increase. And so God's word tells us to develop a whole soul gratitude and again, at the deepest level, that's an in and of itself. That's worship. That's part of what we should be experiencing as we gather for Lord's Day worship, just grateful for being able to enjoy and serve and love the God who's redeemed us, who's so beautiful and majestic as our choir sang about. But it also leads to specific fruit in our life, according to the Word of God. And in verses 4, we see that this gratitude to God led for a desire for God's glorious gospel faithfulness to be celebrated around the globe. And so on our second point, I urge you to declare your gratitude globally. 
Look at verse 4. It almost seems like a weird transition, doesn't it? He's been talking about God's goodness to him, probably his people as well. And he says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Most of the time in the Psalms, it's talking about the nations. This is a unique place where it actually talks about the kings of the earth. The closest is Psalm 2, but that's more of a call to repentance. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But nonetheless, we see that David expects that great leaders, and thus the nations they serve, will join in in this not dutiful, perfunctory religious sacrifice, but in whole-souled gratitude. Joining in, trusting the God of Israel as their Redeemer, because notice how their thanksgiving is going to go. They're going to give thanks, and notice it leads to a song in verse 5. They give you thanks, and they, it leads to singing. Isn't that what David experienced in his own life in verse 1? He says, I'll give you thanks, and then before the gods, or I would suggest rulers, I will sing your praise. Don't we sing about that which is most important to us? Don't the things that move us, we want to express, especially the more creative ones among us in, in poetry or song. And sometimes it feels like the only way we can adequately express our worship and gratitude is through some sort of art, poetry. I mean, think about it, ladies. You love it when your men, whether you're dating or married, you know, says, hey, I love you, you're great. That's nice. But isn't it even nicer when they write it in a card, especially nowadays where we email in a handwritten card? Maybe they take it a step above and write a little poem, a love poem. Maybe there's a few creatives that can write a song or at least have a good enough voice to sing you a song. Ladies, don't, aren't you moved by that? Don't you say, man, that, he really likes me. He really loves me. He's going to sing about me. And that's what's going on here. The nations, the kings, the greatest ones are joining in. They are learning of the biblical story of redemption, and they're joining in. But why does, why does this thanksgiving for God's glory, for what he's done, why does it lead to an overflow? What's the logic of this text? And I think the logic is in the very things that those kings and the nations they represent, the reason why they're singing to the Lord, and it's at the end of verse 5, for, for great is the glory of the Lord. When we experience and see the most majestic glory of our triune God, when we see that, it's so stunning. It's so stunning that we can't help but overflow. And we know that God's glory, God's glory is seen in His goal for all of creation. We know that God created this world so that Adam and Eve would produce image bearers that would fill the earth and worship and glorify God in every activity of life. And when the fall came, God didn't scrap that plan. He just made a redemptive remake, which he'd planned from eternity past. And he made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he said he would bless the nations through Abraham and his seed. And as David experienced God's fresh covenant mercies, I think he reflected on God's redemptive plan, and he knew that God's glory was seen in God fulfilling his plan of all nations joining in to worship and glorify God. It's his love for God's glory that's driving him. It's the glory of the Lord that's going to drive the nations to the God of Israel. Again, that's the logic of verse 5. The thing they're giving thanks for as they've heard the words of God's word, as they sing, it's... At the end of verse 5, for great is the glory of the Lord. Great is the glory of the Lord. I had a church history professor who was telling the story of when he was in college, he did not believe in God's sovereignty. 
If you're familiar with the terminology, he was an Arminian. People are kind of either Calvinist or Arminian, meaning Calvinist, you believe in God's sovereignty, even of those who respond to the gospel. Arminian are those who believe we have the ability to respond, and it's up to the individual. And my church history professor, when he was in seminary, was saying he was an Arminian and really passionate about missions. And as they were studying modern church history, and he saw the leaders of the modern Protestant missionary movement, guys like uh, William Carey, uh, Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, he, he, could, he kept saying, why do these people believe in God's sovereignty and yet they're going to the nations and passionate about spreading the gospel to the nations? And so he finally asked his church history professor in seminary and said, why are these Calvinists who believe in God's sovereignty leading the mission movement of the gospel? And he said what his seminary professor told him turned him on the path of pursuing the Reformed faith. He said, well, they certainly love their neighbor. They didn't want people to go to hell. They wanted them to experience the same salvation. But more than that, they were driven and compelled by the glory of God. They went out for the glory of God. There's a history of the glory of God and His majesty driving us so that others will experience God's glory in the gospel to be turned from darkness into marvelous light. Because we see in our text where God's glory is on display most, and it's in verse 6. Notice they're celebrating in verse 5 the glory of the Lord, and in verse 6 begins with another explanatory word. Where is God's glory seen? And it's in this biblical redemptive principle. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. That's a gospel principle that we see in Old and New Testament. It's often expressed that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's the gospel right here. This God who's so majestic and so high, he's willing to condescend and and save those who will humble themselves and trust his mercy. The nations are pictured as celebrating the gospel, celebrating grace, that God has been so kind to them that he justly opposes the proud. He justly punishes the wicked, but those who repent, those who become lowly, He regards, he saves, he brings in a covenant relationship with himself. And once again, we see the glory of God and the good of sinners joined together. And the psalmist says the nations will celebrate that. So friends, I have to ask you today, as we try to deepen our gratitude, a whole-souled gratitude, is it overflowing to the nations in your life? Is it overflowing in your prayers and your giving and the way you act to see others around the globe experience God's mercy and begin to glorify Him? Let me point you to something that's going on in verse 4 to encourage you in that. In verse 4, it says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. This word for is a Hebrew conjunction that can mean for or when. And in this context, I don't believe they've heard it yet. Because you notice it says, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, future. Verse 5, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And I would suggest we understand that he's saying, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And I believe we see an implied commitment in David that he is going to be the one sharing the gospel, the good news of God's grace, expressing his gratitude for God's saving mercies to the kings that he would encounter because that's how God set up Israel. 
He set them up in a place where between Egypt and Assyria, there was a great tradeway and people would go through and kings and royal dignitaries would have to pass through and David's reign was glorious and so he would constantly be courting kings of the ancient Near East and his commitment first and foremost is that all the kings you bring my way, those that you've providentially put in my path, I'm gonna give thanks to you so that they can join you and join me in thanksgiving. They would hear of this public praise And friends, I encourage you, as you think about declaring your gratitude globally, start locally. In God's providence, God is bringing the nations to your neighborhood, to your schools. And there's opportunities right before you to embrace those from other countries who are new here, who come from non-Christian backgrounds, many of who've never heard the gospel. Do like King David, start with those that God brings in your path. There's three ways you can do this. One is just be attentive to the people that are in your path, in your workplace and schools. Students, many of you probably have young people from other nations that are in your class that look different than you, from Asia, from Africa, from South America. Students, befriend them. Go out of your way to be kind to them and develop a relationship that maybe you'll have an opportunity to share the good news of the Redeemer that you serve. I talked to a guy after my presentation who said all his coworkers are Indian. Many of you have people in your workplace from other countries, many of whom do not know the gospel. Go out of your way to build a relationship, to build a friendship, to invite them into your home. See it as God's providence, because it is. Secondly, serve in ESL here at Redeemer. You are reaching the nations through ESL. Join in. There's always need for help in ESL. I believe y'all support David Billingsley and RUF International at the University of Texas at Dallas. They're always looking for church members to come and build relationships with their students. And David tells me that he just has tons and tons of Indian students, and most of them have never heard the gospel. Friends, three ways in your immediate context that you can join in in declaring the goodness of God, giving thanks among them that they too might join in in God's kindness. And then don't just end there. Because we have a mandate to make disciples of all nations, do we not? And so continue to pray. How will your prayer life go forward? Will you pray intentionally for the nations? Do you have a regular commitment, a pattern of praying for the gospel to go forward through those missionaries that are taking the gospel to unreached? How does your giving reflect this? Beyond your commitment and the first fruits of this local church, are you giving above and beyond that to support the work of the gospel? How would your gratitude be expressed in that way? And maybe for some of you, God's been working on you for a while. Maybe for some of you, when you hear sermons like this, when you hear missions, there's just a little bit of, you perk up a little bit. You're like, gosh, maybe I want to do that. Maybe God is calling me to do that. And maybe even today as we talk about this, your heart is just, you're stirred. And I urge you to take the next step. (laughs) Go on a short-term mission trip. Contact MTW and talk to them and find out about opportunities about where you might be able to serve. Christian, if you are here today and you claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to delight in his grace towards you, and yet you have no intentionality and passion about the great commission, you do have a disobedience problem because we're called to go and make disciples and participate. But you have something deeper than a disobedience problem this text reveals to us. You have something behind that disobedience problem. It's that you have a gratitude problem. You're not giving wholesale gratitude because the mercy of God in Christ towards you does not seem fresh and real because this scripture says when it does, there's an overflow to the globe 
And so maybe as you consider this text and look at your heart, God is calling you to repent and to repent first and foremost about a heart that is really hardened towards God, a heart that is not overflowing with gratitude. And so maybe God would give you grace to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit today and plead with Him that He would renew your love and gratitude for Him and that that would naturally overflow. And friends, maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're a student here and you've grown up in a Christian home or you're a young or older adult and you're, you're just exploring the Christian gospel, coming to worship maybe because someone invited you. And if you're not a Christian, I want to focus you on verse 6 about this wonderful promise that's made about the God we're worshiping here today. It says that though he is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Jesus Christ is offering himself to you today, non-Christian. He is welcoming you if you will but humble yourself and express your need for his grace, if you will own your sin and rebellion against him and that there's nothing you can do to make that right, that you will cast yourself fully on this God of mercy that though he is high, he regards the lowly. Friends, don't be the one at the end of verse 6, the haughty that he knows from afar. There's two ways you could be here today and be haughty. It could be the Frank Sinatra way, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to live however I want to do and forget God, or it can be the good old boy religion in the South like we have where I grew up, where I am a good person, I go to church, I do good things, and God must love me, and He'll probably welcome me into heaven because I'm a good old boy. And both ways are haughty ways, they're ways of pride and rebellion. Friends, you must humble yourself before this God of mercy and grace, and He is offering Himself to you, and so I plead with you, student or not student, younger or older, accept this gracious invitation of what we see about our God in verse 6. Friends, as we develop wholehearted gratitude, it will not only lead us to want to declare God's gratitude globally, it will encourage our dependence on God, which we will need as we do that second task of declaring God's grace globally. Let me very briefly point you to verse 7 and 8, to depend on the God to whom you are grateful I'm going to read verse 7 and 8, and I want you to see this this conjunction of ongoing trouble in David's life, and yet confidence that God will continue to work in his life. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, it's still ongoing, you preserve my life. Psalm 138.3 is going to continue to be true. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. David expects trouble. And yet, because he has a fresh taste of God's goodness and he's experiencing whole-souled gratitude, do you see the confidence that as he steps forward in the trouble that he will face, the new confidence that God will be with him, God will strengthen him, God will continue to strengthen his soul as he cries out to him over and over and over again. You see, it's regularly developing a whole-souled gratitude that leads us to dependence on God. That's the dynamic of one of our favorite verses we run to in our anxiety. Think about Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Many of you know it somewhat by heart. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the God of peace will be with you. It almost seems odd at first. Why thanksgiving? Why, when I'm anxious... Why is thanksgiving necessary to experience God's peace? I think it's the same dynamic we see here. When we have thanksgiving, we have a fresh taste of God's faithfulness, His covenant 
commitment to us, and so we're able to trust Him with our anxieties. We know that He'll continue to be for us and with us, and we can walk forward in dependence on God. There was a mall I used to visit in India. It was on the outskirts of the city, really new mall, but lots of people from the village would come there, people who'd never been to a mall, and it was funny to see them as they'd get to the escalator because they'd never been on an escalator to take them from floor to floor. And I would see men and women, they would kind of go up to the edge of it and kind of step back. I would see it go and their legs would go like this. Have you ever seen Elf? Maybe remember when Buddy the Elf was on the escalator stretching out? They would do that. They'd never been on one. It was terrifying to them. Terrifying. They didn't know if they could trust it. Friends, why do you get on an escalator and never think twice about it? Because you've done it hundreds of times. You know it will deliver you. When you develop a whole soul gratitude, when you're constantly reflecting on God's goodness, you know your God can be trusted. And so it's much easier to cast your anxieties upon Him, and especially as He calls us to reach out to our neighbors from the nations and to go to the nations, to pray, to give. We need to depend on the God to whom we are grateful because we cannot do it in our own native strength. If God has been moving you to reach out, you're going to need God's strength. You'll need it. And so I urge you to depend on the God to whom you are grateful as we face our great enemies. I want to conclude by telling you about Tracy Otler. I told you about her in the beginning. For seven years, she never knew the anonymous benefactor that in some senses changed her trajectory of life. And then one day, as she was working her nursing rounds in the hospital, a lady named Margo, an elderly lady with multiple sclerosis, was there, and she was very sick. And Tracy began to to care for her, and they realized they knew each other. Tracy's like, where did I know you from? It's like, well, we used to live in the same apartment a number of years ago. And she's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And she didn't think much of it. Margot progressed in her disease, and as she was in the hospital, was getting, she was getting near where she was going to die. And just before she died, she grabbed uh, Tracy's hand. And it wasn't November, it wasn't Thanksgiving time. And she looked at her and grabbed her hand and said, happy Thanksgiving. And then it was, Tracy knew, this elderly lady who had multiple sclerosis, is the one who gave to me. And her sense of profound gratitude was deepened all the more as she got to know the one who was behind this. Friends, our God has not remained anonymous to us. He's revealed himself to us in Scripture. We can know him and delight in him. And as we see the glory of God towards us in Jesus Christ, our hearts can continue to explode with gratitude for his kindness to us, his pledge to be our God, to walk with us. He's committed that on the day we call, he will answer us. He will continue to strengthen our souls. He promises us resurrection and new heavens and new earth. He will be with you in the most difficult things you'll face in the days and months and years ahead. And this truth must lead us to a regular experience of God's, of wholesale gratitude, a gratitude that will go around the globe and to the nations. And so, friends, today I urge you in humble dependence on God the Holy Spirit to grow a gratitude that goes global. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word today. We're thankful that you're a God who can be trusted, that you've pledged yourself to us. We confess that we are often not grateful as we should be, and we need your Holy Spirit to help us repent and grow in a deeper gratitude not just for the temporal blessings, not just when we sit down to have a meal and thankful for food and a a roof over our heads, a free country to worship you in, but Lord, even beyond that, for all that you've pledged to be to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Grant that the folks here at Redeemer would be a people corporately and individually who are marked by whole-souled gratitude and that that gratitude would lead them to the nations, the nations first that you've brought here, but also the nations that still desperately need people to take the good news of Jesus to them. Please let your glory go global and use us in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.